Hallelujah. Father, today we confess as your people, those who have had their hearts redeemed by the miraculous life-changing work of the Holy Spirit, awakening our eyes once blind to the truth of our own sin and the reality of Jesus Christ crucified in our place, opening up our hearts, causing them to be soft and pliable by the truth of your word proclaimed, hearts once stone cold, broken, and dead in trespasses and sins. Lord, we have been awakened, shaken up from the stupor of our hatred of you, from our transgression of your holy law, unto confession of faith in Christ as our Savior and as and a testimony of his sovereignty, not only in our lives, but over all things. And so we, your people, Lord Jesus, having been resurrected by the work of Christ from spiritual death, proclaim that he, Jesus Christ, is indeed our living hope. Because he has risen from the dead, so we will rise from the grave one day, joining him in his ascension before the right hand of the Father, to co-rule with him, not by anything of our merit or worth, but because the power of his sanctifying, the power of his propitiatory blood is so intense that it washes away our sin, renders us holy, worthy of the presence of God, and gives us the charge to take dominion and to rule with him. What a glorious future we have in Christ. What a glorious hope surpassing this life unto all eternity. What a powerful work at Calvary was indeed transforming not only our own souls, but redeeming this whole world one day. Lord, I pray that you would just remind us and reassure us of these truths as we open the pages of your scripture today. I pray that as your scripture is proclaimed, that it would call us to attention and to obedience and faith. And if there are any lost in the hearing of this message today, that it would cause them to awaken from the stupor like Lazarus. And as your word is preached, I pray that they would hear, come forth in the name of Jesus, that they would repent and believe and join us in this great call, this highest purpose of extolling and magnifying the glories of Jesus Christ through walking in his footsteps, worshiping him in song, professing him in truth, and adhering to his word and bowing before his authority this day and unto eternity. We pray that you would be glorified, magnified, and that fruit of the kingdom of God would grow as a result of this service and the word proclaimed through every Bible proclaiming and believing church in this nation and the world beyond unto the day when Christ himself returns in glory to bring his church home forevermore. It's in his name we pray. It's his name we exalt, Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. As you're able, I invite you to open, your, your script, open up your scriptures. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. Today, the first Sunday of the month, as traditionally our communion Sunday. And this Sunday is special because we have eight baptized believers who the communion table will be open to today, who previously did not participate in the same way as they now do, saved and testifying publicly of their salvation in that great service we had recently. So it's really awesome to think of the power of the gospel proclaimed in its word and dramatized in baptism and pictured in communion. Then also incredible to welcome into the body of Christ and the fellowship of the beloved more members who have confessed their sins and believed in Jesus Christ 
as we have recognized recently even among us. Quite an awesome thing indeed. Today as we turn to the scriptures, we consider the remaining portion of 2 Peter chapter 3. This message will bring us to the close of the book. Uh, I plan to preach one more message, overview sermon, from this, uh, next, from this uh, book next month. But in the meantime, we'll consider the last words of Peter, so far as we know, to the church, at least recorded in the scriptures. He seemed to uh, have some insight from the Spirit that he better make these words count because he himself was highly suspect that he didn't have many years to live. Thus, the height, uh, this heightens, therefore, the importance and the intensity of the words that he has to say. And he gives us instructions as a church, even as he instructed the church's first audience 2,000 years ago. The title of this morning's message is Proactive Waiting. Proactive means active or purposeful, intentional. It's to be contrasted with the term passive. Waiting, what does it mean? Well, typically we think of waiting as a passive enterprise. Just a quick illustration. I remember going to Six Flags in college on a hot day in Texas and waiting for a roller coaster ride. And after a while, you start to think, is the ride really worth the wait? There's a lot of passive waiting going on. And at these parks on busy days, they found ways to try to amuse you while this line works its way down, down, down until you finally step on to this roller coaster. Sometimes it can take an hour or more. And so there you are, there's misters, you know, trying to cool you off in the hot Texas sun. And there's a video monitor, you know, streaming Nickelodeon TV or whatever for your uh, amusement along the way. This is passive waiting. What is active waiting, proactive waiting? Well, just to take that same illustration, if you were to redeem the time of an hour wait for a Six Flags roller coaster ride, you might grab a bullhorn from your back pocket if it could fit, or just raise your voice and open up a pocket, a New Testament, and begin to tell people how they might be saved. And yeah, they might be annoyed with you, but you would be proactive in that line. So that's the difference between passive and proactive waiting. We as his people, as saints, between now and when he returns again, are called to be proactive. Therefore, the aim of this morning's message is to equip the church by means of big picture sovereignty. When we keep the big picture of God's purposes and plan, his coming, the day of the Lord, his second coming, a day of judgment on the horizon, and a day of salvation for his people, it prepares us for the trials and for the waiting that we are called to do in the meantime. With that introduction, and your hearts and Bibles open, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's scriptures today? Let us consider the holy word of God in 2 Peter 3, 10 through the close of the chapter, verse 18. Here is the word of God. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. 
just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Proactive Waiting. A central theme of Peter's admonition to the early church, we've remarked this all the way through the book of 2 Peter, is this concept of what we've come to call a reckoning perspective. The early church was facing challenges of Christian faithfulness in a day where a reckoning perspective was absolutely necessary. That is, that is keeping the big picture of God's plan and purposes in mind as a source of encouragement and endurance in the meantime. Peter's closing remarks reiterate and expand this concept, this mindset, worldview, if you will, which provides his readers the answer to this question. How do I keep the faith when I'm surrounded by so many enemies? Perhaps we can relate. How do we keep the faith when we're surrounded by so many enemies? And of course, Peter answers by maintaining a reckoning perspective. The context of Peter's words of exhortation and expectation parallel the structure of other messages throughout Scripture. He references Paul directly, but indirectly, I submit, his words draw from Isaiah's words, Isaiah's oracle, and Jesus' own ministry. Isaiah's proclamation, both the beginning and the end of his ministry, and Jesus' parable ministry echo some of these same themes that Peter gives us today. Peter references both the day of the Lord and the new heavens and new earth prophecies. The day of the Lord and the new heavens and new earth. These are introduced to us in the book of Isaiah. These two ideas, these two prophetic realities frame the ministry of the prophet, Isaiah, while the ministry of Christ concludes with references of waiting and final judgment as well. Therefore, we see Peter as a diligent apostle and a faithful disciple and minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, What's he doing here? He's learning well, taking seriously the warnings and prophecies that Jesus had given him and that were recorded in books like Matthew chapters 23 through 25, Jesus' final teaching, and he's applying them for the church in his day. In his final teaching, for instance, Jesus proclaims woes, that is, a message of judgment, upon the scripture twisters of his day, who are these people, the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees, as he identifies them in chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel, who abuse their influence and uh, their learning to lead their followers astray. A day of reckoning was coming for them. Matthew 24 proclaims as much. This day of reckoning that Matthew 24 and Luke 17 describe is the day of the Lord's visitation in cataclysmic, dramatic judgment terms. And in both of these references, Matthew 24 and Luke 17, the authors invoke what I have called event oracles, times of God's visitation in the past that let you know he'll do it again and give you an idea and a pattern 
of his work, involvement, his sovereignty over history and accountability of every generation in every age to the day of his coming. Event oracles like this, Noah's, or event oracles such as Noah's flood and the sulfur rain over Sodom and Gomorrah are two examples that are referenced. Jesus concludes his teaching ministry in Matthew's record in chapter 25, and here he gives waiting and stewardship parables. We won't have time, of course, to cover all this background material, but suffice it to say, it is surely evidently in the mind of Peter as he writes. He thinks quite deeply about that parable that Jesus gave him of the ten virgins. It's necessary that they trim their lamp to be ready. They didn't know when the bridegroom was going to come, but they knew if they were diligent to their task that that meant they needed to be ready at any given moment. Likewise, the parable of the talents illustrates stewardship. God has given you a task, proactive waiting. The passive waiting of the one who buried his talent was judged in the end, but those who were busy about the duty that their master had given, him, given them, they, in fact, in the end, were rewarded. Thus, the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, Jesus' proclamation following these parables of final judgment, all of this is in the background, no doubt, of Peter as he instructs the church. There's a foretelling of final judgment in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, and that's that passage where Jesus talks about the end of time, the end of days, when the sheep will be separated from the goats, etc. Thus, Peter understands from the word of Christ and the challenges of his day that waiting is dangerous. When we were preaching through Matthew years ago, that was a theme towards the end of Jesus' ministry that I seek to, that I seek to uh, remind us of, that waiting is dangerous. Waiting requires equipment. Waiting requires a careful uh, consideration, a reckoning perspective in Peter's, uh, in terms of Peter's epistle is necessary for the church to endure the trials of the meantime. When we get proactive about our duty and when we recognize those big picture truths, we realize the necessary equipment, we are sufficiently armed for the dangerous task of waiting for the promises of God through his covenant that will be manifest fully in the future. Peter applies these teachings for the church of Asia Minor in no uncertain terms. He's very clear about it. The words of Isaiah, Jesus, Peter, and Paul are indispensable for us today as well. They answer the pressing questions that arise in times of waiting and in times of great trial. And there's four questions in our text today, explicitly and implicitly, that I'd like to organize our sermon around. I'll give you this heading. Peter's last words answer four reckoning perspective questions. And here they are. Number one, what are we waiting for? Verses 10 through 13. Number two, what sort of people are we to be? What are we waiting for? What sort of people are we to be? Number three, what is the alternative you know, to the people we're supposed to be? What is the opposite of that? And then finally, what is our chief end, our highest purpose, the ultimate goal? Peter's last words answer these four reckoning perspective questions in our text today. First of all, Peter answers this question, what are we waiting for in verses 10 through 13? He describes this event, occasion, future reality in terms of the day of the Lord and new heavens and new earth. A second coming indeed, verse 10. Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and when the heavens 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord. As I'm, re- as I'm going over some of these passages, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2, so we can get the background of some of what he is describing here. In verse 12, he goes on to say, We're waiting for and hastening the coming, the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Did you catch those two references? They're drawn from the book of Isaiah, I submit. Verse 10, the day of the Lord. Verse 12, the day of God. As we turn to Isaiah 2, we get some background of this concept of the day of the Lord. What does it mean? Let's pick up this again. Note is in the beginning of the prophet's ministry. Peter points to a visitation yet future that has clear precedent in, co- in covenant history. In other words, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the day of the Lord, and this day of the Lord is a second coming. It's a second coming of sorts in two senses. Jesus came first in the incarnation in his ministry of redemption. He's coming again in victory and in judgment. Classically, this is the second coming of Christ. And so this day of the Lord indeed refers to the second coming of Christ. But it's also a second coming of the Lord in another sense. It's a second coming in the sense that God has come in at occasions provisionally throughout the course of redemptive history. So when Peter points to these visitations, he's pointing to the words of Isaiah describing days like this, the day of the Lord. And also he uses events as examples in his own writing. We'll touch on a few examples in a minute. In Isaiah 2, verse 11 and through 22, we read the following. The haughty looks of men, man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That's your highlightable phrase, in that day. Isaiah is expounding the day of the Lord and what to expect in times such as this. A reference that is echoed by Peter, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day. Kids, we should play the stop game, should we? You guys want to play the stop game? All right, every time you hear day, tell me to stop, all right? So let's back up. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Very good. For the Lord of hosts has a day. Second reference, against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against the, all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Excellent, number three. And the idols shall pass away, and the people shall enter the caves and the rocks and the holes in the ground. From before the terror of the Lord... And from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth, in that day, excellent, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they have made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caves of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? So the kids identified for us four references to the day of the Lord. The Lord of hosts has a day, and on that day, he visits the earth. And this is a day of reckoning, a day of accounting, 
a day of visitation, which spells redemption and salvation for those who are in right covenant standing with him, but which spells judgment for those who have not turned from their sins and trusted in his promises for their salvation. This day of the Lord is a day in which God will be exalted. It is a day in which the proud and lofty will be brought down. And in what ways does the Lord cast down the proud on that day? Well, he defaces those, uh, hu the humanistic pride of man. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of man shall be humbled. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. The day of the Lord's visitation came in the form of removing that expression of the image of God in him that gave him reasoning and had caused his soul to be active and in his common grace have the ability to interact in a way that used logic and so forth, and he was reduced to just his animal instincts. So for seven periods of time, this Nebuchadnezzar ate grass, and it says his hair grew long like eagle's feathers, and his nails, he didn't even think to trim them, grew like talons of a bird. And what changed the circumstances? Well, in, he was condemned to this judgment until the day when he confessed that he was not king of kings, but there was a sovereign yet over him. The once proud and self-worshipping, um, elitist, empirical, uh, self-appointed savior of the world and ruler of the empire was brought low on the day of the Lord. The Lord brought down the proud and lofty on that day, defaced the pride of the secular humanist, said, you are not God, but indeed you serve at the pleasure of the Lord. Stop regarding man was a message to everybody else in whose nostrils and breath. For of what account is he? By one strike of the Lord's day of visitation, he can reduce the most impressive actor of evil to, cow, to a cow that you could herd with all the other oxen in the fields of Bashan. Furthermore, verse 15, against every high tower and against every fortified wall. Verse 13, against the cedars of Lebanon, the lofty lifted up oaks of Bashan. What do we take pride in? Landmarks of natural resources that represent the identity and the a prosperity of a country. That's what the cedars of Lebanon were. They were used in the construction of the temple, but they were also used in the construction of palaces to show off the pride and the authority and the riches and the wealth and the influence and the sovereignty of mere men. The Lord has the ability to tear down the cedar pillars of the palaces of the ungodly of those who are high and lifted up against the knowledge of the Lord. And he can destroy them in a moment, and that's what happens on his day. Furthermore, areas of military fortification and defense, every high tower and every fortified wall, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but they are proven fools on the day of the Lord. And how about economic pride and national pride? Ships of Tarshish against the beautiful craft. Nations today, as it was then, take pride in what they can produce by their craftsmanship. And then they revel in and show off the riches that they attain by their productivity. That's what the ships of Tarshish represent. But the day of the Lord was coming. He would sink them all. And he would render them all uh, just a kindling in his hand as he snaps the ships of Tarshish by the storms upon the sea. And in that day, the haughtiness of man is humbled. The lofty pride of man is brought low. And the Lord alone is exalted in that day. This is the day of the Lord. And this is, these are references that Peter uses to give a reckoning perspective to the church. Though there are times where haughty men seek to flex their muscle 
against the church. And while we seem such a pitifully a small group by contrast, our influence is marginal compared to the cultural megaphones of our day. Nevertheless, there is a day of reckoning coming. It's happened before, has it not? Peter points to a couple of reckonings in the course of his words. In the second chapter, he says, verse 4, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committing them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and then later he's going to connect this to a then statement in verse uh, 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. You see, before this world even began, there was rebellion in the heavenlies. The third of the angels joined the satanic enterprise in declaring a coup, seeking to usurp the throne, authority, and glory of God. But there was a day of reckoning for those reprobate angels. They were judged, condemned, and cast out of the presence of the Lord. And their fall is significant, and their fall will be fully manifest in the lake of fire one day, when the condemned angels serve as a testimony to the sovereign power of an almighty God to judge, when they burn forever with all the other, the rest of the reprobate, forever as a testimony to God's justice, wrath, and authority in the flame that never dies and the lake that burns with the sulfur of their judgment. This was an event oracle, if you will. This was a day of the Lord preceding even creation itself, proof positive that God has the power to judge, and at the point of his choosing, he will. There's another one mentioned in verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly, and of course, in the construction of this extended sentence, we connect that again with verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Condemned angels, Noah. Later he references Lot in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah. He references creation in our text today, just backing up in chapter 3 a few verses. This is, these are the things the ungodly deliberately overlook. They deliberately overlooked this fact, he says in verse 5, chapter 3, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Another event oracle, another day of the Lord, another coming of the Lord is referenced in verse 6, that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The great flood, the global deluge, the judgment in the days of Noah. That is what the ungodly deliberately overlook. If the ungodly deliberately overlook these things, then we as God's people are called to deliberately look upon them. Deliberately look upon the record in God's scriptures of the condemned angels being cast out of the presence of Almighty God. Look deliberately upon the day of the Lord at Sodom and Gomorrah where their acts of homosexual perversion were one day called to account and because they did not repent, they were destroyed in a precursor to hell in fire raining down from the a hand of God. Yahweh sent from Yahweh fire from heaven to destroy the wicked and the reprobate that inhabited the cities of the plains. We are to deliberately look upon these events of the day of the Lord. Why? Because it gives us that reckoning perspective. We, are too, we too are waiting for a day when God will visit and all the balances of justice will be perfectly righted. The unrepentant wicked will get their just dues and the saved who look for God to intervene will be welcomed into his presence forever. We are looking for the second coming of Christ. What are we waiting for? The day of the Lord. And thirdly, what are we waiting for? A new heavens and new earth. 
Peter describes the moment that we set our eyes upon this reckoning perspective, this future orientation, this event on the horizon in terms of new heavens and new earth in verse 13 of our text. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Turning back to Isaiah once again, we see where he has gleaned where, from uh, which of uh, what passages Peter has gleaned this message as well. He draws the day of the Lord from the beginning of Isaiah's ministry in chapter 2. And then he references the new heavens and new earth, the close of Isaiah's oracle in chapter 66. Verse 18, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and they shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and to Javan, to the coastlands afar off. These references to distant cities and areas outlying tribal regions, that term coastland refers to the nooks and crannies, the unreached peoples, the third world countries, and you know those areas that are inhospitable or small language groups and so forth. The message is that in this proactive waiting, what God is accomplishing is His word going forth to call all of the redeemed, all of the elect, to citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because there's a day coming. As you'll bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries. All these means of transportation across the landscape of history, across the geography of the earth, across the anthropology of the nations, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Verse 22, Isaiah 66. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. There's a lot packed in to that phrase, new heavens and new earth. You see it in the context of covenant history in Peter's own ministry. Who is he writing to? He's writing to churches in the outskirts of Asia Minor, Cappadocia, Ephesus, Galatia, Bithynia, and so forth, that are referenced as his first audience in 1 Peter chapter 1. And what does Peter acknowledge by this reference to a new heaven and new earth? He's acknowledging the continuing fulfillment of the Lord's work pending new heavens and new earth. As the gospel went forth to Asia Minor and as this church received Peter's letter, they were to be encouraged by this reckoning perspective, this big picture of God's sovereignty. They are those among Tarshish, Pol, Lud, Tubal, and Javan who had heard the word of God through the missionary efforts of apostles like Peter and Paul. And now as they were welcomed in, they were being uh, uh, cleansed from their sins by the power of the gospel, appointed as ministers, fulfilling Isaiah's words in chapter 66. Some of them I will take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. The Lord is anointing and commissioning and sanctifying and sending Gentiles to reach Gentiles. A miracle of His provision, provision tearing down the one-time symbolic ethnic wall of separation and spreading the gospel, breaking all the boundaries and borders that once separated men from the knowledge of the Lord. What are we waiting for? Peter tells the church a second coming of Jesus Christ. 
We're waiting for the day of the Lord when that reckoning and that uh, court case will happen with perfection by the omniscient and omniscient, and, and the one who sees all and has all power. And we're waiting for a new heavens and new earth, that ultimate picture of redemption where everything is remade, not just each human heart regenerated, born again, but even the whole world. In the Greek, there's a term called palingenesia, which means regenerated earth, quite literally born again earth. And I believe it's in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says to his apostles, you'll rule with me in this new world or palingenesia. This world in its corrupt and pitiful attempt to counterfeit God's purposes tries to save themselves. They conceive of a new world and a new way of organizing things. You hear whispers of a great reset or a new world order or a long shot Hail Mary pass through political humanistic attempts to save us from these high gas prices and this inflation and all this international conflict. It will all fail. There's only one hope for salvation, global unity, only one United Nations, only one tribe, tongue, and nation unifying event in all of world history. And what is that? It's the day of the Lord. It happens at the day of the Lord. It happens at the second coming of Christ. And it's a new heavens and new earth reality where all the saints who are unified in their confession of the gospel as sinners now saved by grace, worship him in one spirit and through one baptism, through one faith, their one Lord forever and without end. And this is what we see pictured in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, where that new heavens and new earth it's described in terms of New Jerusalem. It's a city, it's a habitation, it's a gathering, it's an assembly without end that, that uh, the Lord has prepared for those who love him. So Peter's last words answer four reckoning perspective questions, the first of which, what are we waiting for? This is what we're waiting for. A second coming, a day of the Lord, a new heavens and new earth. Well, there's application points that he then shifts to. In light of this, there's a second question. What sort of people are we to be? When we keep these things in mind, this reckoning perspective, how should it change our day-to-day -day lives? Well, Peter's clear on that as well, and he gives a number of instructions, exhortations, in the course of his book, but there's several in our text today as well. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, so in light of the day of the Lord, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? Holy and godly, we are called to be. Hastening, waiting proactively, and by doing that, hastening, in a sense, the coming of the day of the Lord. Furthermore, there's more kind of application, connecting words and language. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, waiting for what? Well, second coming, day of the Lord, new heavens and new earth. He says, be diligent, again, verse 14, to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We're to be diligent, spotless, blemish-free, and peaceful. Furthermore, he continues with instructions in verse 19, or uh, in verse 16 and 17. I, I guess 15 is what I'm after. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom, wisdom given him. In other words, what does proactive waiting look in a times of God's forbearance his long-suffering, and his patience. Well, he's gone over this a bit a little earlier on, verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what sort of people are we to be in light of the coming day of the Lord and all that accompanies it? We're to be godly and holy, the apostle instructs. We are to, in in this sense, we are, or to this end, we are to embrace the means that God gives us become godlier and holier. This would be a callback to the beginning of the book where Peter opens his message to the church in 2 Peter 1.3 by saying this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Realize the ministry of Christ through the gospel, the means of grace that are available to you as you walk in obedience to him. As you read his scriptures and add to your understanding of the gospel more knowledge of the truth, as you seek to apply that and make decisions according to a new standard of ethics and righteousness, namely the word of God, his law, and what he has laid forth as his standard for holiness, when things begin to change, you begin to embrace his power granted to you, sufficient power, that is, for life and godliness. These are the reasons that Peter writes, or for this reason, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith. This is verse uh, 4, verse 5. Supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as he reminds the church of their call in chapter 3, holiness and godliness, He does so in the context of his practical admonition in chapter 1 to avail himself of the faith supplements, to be conscious and growing and committed and determined to add to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And as you do so, you will see an increasing fruitfulness and effectiveness in your ministry, and in the church. And this fruitfulness and effectiveness will demonstrate itself in a number of ways. It will make you more equipped to share your faith. It will lead to more fruit of your ministry as, a, as one who is, an, who is an ambassador of Jesus Christ sharing the gospel. But it will also yield fruit and effectiveness in being able to wait in faith and to keep a strong sense of confidence and endurance through trial and difficult times. Why? Because you're not only availing yourself of these means here, but also this reckoning perspective that God is sovereign. He has come before. He will come again. And there's none that escapes his day, uh, the day of the Lord, his day of accounting. And so in this way, what sorts of people are we called to be? Well, in light of these truths, holy and godly, furthermore, diligent, spotless, blameless, and peaceful. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Diligent. This goes back to that proactive waiting call. Doing the work that God has called us to do, not passively, but instead working in such a way as to, in Peter's words, if it could be said, hasten the coming day of the Lord. And though we know that God is sovereign and has ordered history and our works in and of themselves don't hasten the day of the Lord per se, One thing is certainly true. There are consequences or there are conditions, there are benchmarks that will be met before the Lord returns. So in this sense, with every soul that's saved, we're one step closer to the new heavens and new earth. 
So as you work to save souls, to spread the message, message to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, there's this morale and this vision, this working with the Spirit. There's this inertia. You're aligning yourself with the purposes and plan of God. And you can feel the tug and the momentum moving forward to that glorious day of eternity. As souls confess, like those eight that stood before us recently and said, I believe Jesus Christ is my Savior. I know that I'm a sinner and I'm saved and I trust in his blood to save me. We've added to our numbers, God has, eight souls. And we're eight souls closer to the new heavens and new earth. Is my conviction, saints, that the growth of the kingdom of God is most substantially member, measured by every member of the elect coming in. And as such, the increase of his kingdom as measured by the elect coming in is a graph like this. One more soul, one more soul, one more soul until the fullness of his purposes and redeeming a people unto himself, that mysterious number that only the Godhead knows is complete. And at that day, we will all join together and a table so far into the distance, I imagine we cannot see the end of, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So be diligent. Keep these things in mind. And keep you motivated to be faithful. Furthermore, spotless and without blemish. And as we see these instructions, we recognize that we are to escape the defilements and we are not to relapse into the old life. What does Peter mean when he says we're called to be spotless and without blemish? We can turn to other passages to get a further understanding, like chapter 2, verse 20. It says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again to entangle in them and over, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Notice this proverb he gives, two animals are in view, verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So don't become defiled. Remain without blemish. That is, recognize that through the gospel, you have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So don't be tempted by the pig food anymore. Don't be tempted by the dog vomit anymore, by the latest and greatest interesting ideas of a world that is in rebellion against the Lord, or the Bible twisting of false teachers who take something that's culturally popular and try to put the stamp of, of a biblical approval on it by taking great liberties, not preaching the scriptures as they are proclaimed to us, but using them as a tool to convince and to deceive others according to the whim and the will of men. So when we avoid these things and stand true on the gospel, the simple yet profound and eternally uh, evident and proclaimed gospel, the things represented at the table of the Lord, the things reaffirmed time and again in Holy Scripture, the message through and through of covenant assurance and the hope of Jesus Christ, this will give us the strength to remain, as it were, without blemish and spotless, escaping the defilements and returning to the, uh, to the uh, pig food and the dog vomit of our old life. And then we are to be at peace. How then should we live? What sort of people ought we to be in light of these realities? Well, Peter instructs us that we are to be without spot or blemish and at peace. Perhaps we can say this in three senses. We are, first of all, to be at peace with God through the gospel. Paul proclaims this in the book of Romans. How can you be assured of peace? 
before a holy God as a sinner. Only when your sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus and you are given through the imputation of Christ a righteousness and a justification that places you in right standing so that there's no more enmity, conflict. There's no more enemy and uh, judge relationship, but instead, Savior and friend. Instead, uh, father and son relationship. Instead, brothers and sisters in Christ as the church and so forth. Instead, grafted into the covenant relationship. Instead, fitted stones against the living stone, Jesus Christ. Instead, a member of the body of Christ fitted into the head from which the source and life flows, Jesus Christ. These are the pictures that we are given. And we, we are at peace with God. This is the reality of our situation. Secondly, we are to be at peace with one another. You know, there's reasons to be in conflict, to be jealous and unforgiving. But one thing the gospel does when it's just heated uh, for the substantive, transforming reality and work that it is, is it begins to heal relationships between, at one time, estranged and enemies. And so we have the ground for forgiveness and peace, and reconciliation and love between believers, a peace with one another. And thirdly, this perhaps is the one that hit me the strongest this week as I was, as I was studying. We need to be at peace with God's purposes and his providence at any given situation. A good ma- Are you at peace with the circumstances that God has placed you in right now? You know, a good meter of peace or not peace would be our anxiety and our stress levels, our fear, our sense of panic and concern that we sometimes mask, not through prayer, but by diversions or delusions. And the world lives this way all the time, but we are called to be at peace, at peace with the circumstances that God has given us and recognize what at first might seem as a horrible reality is often and always in light of the big picture perspectives, an opportunity for us to grow, proclaim Christ, call for repentance, endure for his name, glorify him by demonstrating endurance and perseverance in the face of trial. So what sort of people are we to be? Holy, godly, diligent, spotless, peaceful, also stewards of God's patience. What is the purpose of, made, of waiting, missions, evangelism, that the elect might come in? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If God is patient, though we deserve the day of the Lord, though we deserve that day of reckoning, and though we long for the new heavens and new earth to be established, and we hope that we're the final generation, and, you know, as many predispensationalists or whatever pray that, oh, I can imagine the rapture just around the corner. We must be careful. Let's not sensationalize our experience or see ourselves as the most important or privileged or oppressed generation that ever was or the circumstances worse than they've ever been. Let's understand that if the day of the Lord has not arrived yet, there's purpose in God's patience. And what does it mean to be good stewards of that patience? To proclaim today is yet the day of salvation. God in his patience and his forbearance and his endurance and his long-suffering has waited to dispense the judgment on this wicked world that it deserves in order that one more soul at least may come in and may it be more, O Lord. And so Peter had this sense of imminent call of the gospel. Before the Lord comes, may we get the message out in as many ways and as often as possible so that we can be stewards of this long-suffering of our great God. What's the alternative? Major question number three. Peter's last words, they answer perspective questions like this. What are we waiting for? What sort of people are we to be? 
What's the alternative? Well, without spending a lot of time here, since we have before, Peter just draws a contrast in verses 16 and 17. He speaks of Paul's letters, as he does in his other letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. These are some things in them. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. If you don't maintain that reckoning perspective, if you don't avail yourself of these faith fortifications and this means of strengthening for the day of trial, the alternative, Peter says, falls into several categories. First of all, malicious ignorance. People who do not submit to Christ but use the Scriptures ostensibly as a tool for their own devices, they fall into this category. This would be the Pharisee, the Sadducee, the scribe that Jesus condemned, Matthew 23. This would be the false teacher, the mystic, the spiritual but not religious or whatever, the sort of new agey, a little bit here and a little bit there, I believe in karma and I believe that Jesus was a good teacher kind of ideas today. What are these? Well, these are just gleaning here and there, according to your preferences, a bit of spirituality from this and that, not submitting to Christ, but using him to your advantage. Not exalting the Christ revealed in Scripture, but imagining him to be a God of your own making. And then exploiting the sometimes hard-to-understand portions of Scripture to give some interesting proposal that tickles some ears but misrepresents the Bible in other places. There are indeed some things hard to understand in the scriptures, but the humble man says, he's willing to say, I do not know. But those who are malicious in their ignorance say, I'll take advantage. And so in a day such as ours, where there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of, you know, instability in society and otherwise politically, culturally, spiritually, it creates an environment that is ripe for abuse. False prophets arise, make false claims in their confidence, in their human understanding, and their apparent intellectual abilities, they will seek to exploit us in times like these. Don't be that person. Don't be led astray by that person. Don't be the maliciously ignorant. Why? Because their end is self-destruction. They twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures, the Word of God. The Word of God is not yours to manipulate. The Word of God is a standard before which you must bow. Submit and surrender. Approach it with humility. Therein is Christ and his gospel revealed. So as you bow before that reality and you let your understanding be shaped by Scripture rather than proffering what Scripture says based on your own understanding, you reverse that idolatry of the self-exultant and of the rebels of our day and you escape the end, the judgment, the self-destruction that that kind of attitude and approach deserves You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You cannot, so there are things, there are so many avenues, ideas, you know, platforms and things promoted out there. And I'll put it this way. They value what's interesting more than they value truth. And you don't need to look very far on the internet to find a billion examples of this. But I'll tell you what. Things that tickle the ear and proffer an idea and seem interesting on the surface, they can be very dangerous. What we need is is for our desires and our preferences to be conformed to what ought to be interesting to us, not just what the flesh likes to hear, what the ears think uh, are tickled by, and so on and so forth. There's a lust in our generation to know the future. 
But the Lord calls us to walk by faith. There's a million prophets out there, whether they be cultural, cultural, political, academic, or quasi-spiritual or otherwise, who say that they have an interesting corner on what's going to happen next. Be very careful. This ki these kinds of outlets and these kinds of presumptions can lead to great instability. How can you stay strong and on a good foundation? Well, you must value the truth more than these interesting ideas and concepts and you know, false teachings and experts and all this other stuff that's out there, worldviews and spiritual ideas and the like. Do not be carried away by the error of lawless people, people who do not stand on Christ first. Instead, stand on Christ and judge all others by that measure so you do not lose your stability. And thus, what is the alternative? Well, it is this malicious ignorance, self-destruction, lawless instability, but... If we embrace the reckoning perspective and stand on God's words, submit to him, and embrace his means, we can remain and grow to be more and more the godly, the holy, the diligent, the spotless, the blameless, the peaceful stewards of God's patience. This brings up our final note and question this morning and our transition to communion. Verse 18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The confession asks, what is man's chief end? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's a confessional summary of passages like this. What is our purpose? What is our highest goal? What is that which we were created for? We are made in God's image for the purpose of growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that we can become famous and notable? No. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grace and knowledge is for us. Glory belongs to Christ. And as you grow in grace and knowledge, it is not for the puffing up or the self-assurance or for showing off to one's neighbor, but instead, the degree that you grow in any of these things that we've talked about today, it is only the grace of God, that unmerited favor, and so we should, should not become haughty or proud. We should recognize to God alone be the glory. Turn with me one final passage, John chapter 20. The glory of the Lord, if his word has been rightly divided today, has been displayed in the proclamation of the scriptures. The glory of the Lord in the songs that we have, has been featured in the songs that we have sung that proclaim the truths about him that we've learned from his holy word. The glory of the Lord is displayed in your testimony, believer, a one-time sinner saved by grace here because you identify as a brother and sister with the people of God, as a son and daughter of God Almighty because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, in our service today, there is a unique way in which the glory of the Lord is displayed, and it is displayed symbolically in these elements here. So kids, I have a question for you, especially kids who are recently baptized. Remind us. What does the bread remind us of? Say it louder. And kids, what does the cup remind us of? That's correct. At this table is displayed the glory of the Lord. The body of Jesus Christ symbolically represented in the bread that was broken to pay for our sins and transgressions. The blood, his own lifeblood, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, spilled as a sufficient atoning payment wash away your sins. So the glory of the Lord is displayed in these ways. In the Old Covenant, 
there is a command and a promise that the message of Passover will endure for eternity. Keep this as a sign among your generations forever. And Exodus 12 gives instructions accordingly. When Jesus comes, we find that the Passover lamb was indeed himself. And thus we celebrate in a real sense today, Passover. The Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, will be consumed symbolically by us today, representing that in his body and blood is sufficient provision for our eternal life. Will the testimony of God's glory in the price and purpose of, of redemption exist beyond this life, even in the next life? Well, I submit to you, yes, and I'd like to draw your attention to a verse that I would base this statement upon or a passage. John 20, 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of his nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Accommodating his terms and his unbelief graciously and mercifully, we have the rest of the story. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood by them and said, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Remember our teaching on peace today. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now when we think of Thomas, perhaps we imagine ourselves one of the more noble disciples. Thomas has earned this reputation of the doubting Thomas. He needed to see to believe. But let's have a little more humility than that. The reason that we need this representation here is because there are times when we ourselves are doubting Thomases, when we forget the importance and the reality and the application of the blood of Jesus crucified for us. What reality rushed into Thomas's soul when he touched that wound on Jesus' hand? What knowledge and confession of faith swelled his heart with courage when he touched his side with his hand? The reality that he had just come in tangible contact with the very wounds that washed Thomas's sins away, even his sin of unbelief. And there's a tangible aspect to the glory of the Lord displayed here. And in the past, commentators have put it this way, just as surely and as tangibly as you taste that bread and drink that cup, just that real was the blood of Jesus shed for you and his body broken for the remission of your sins. Will the glory of God be displayed in any way of the cost of redemption beyond this time? I submit to you, yes, and Thomas experiences proof. In heaven one day, when we are all gathered around for the marriage supper of the Lamb, perhaps a long line will form, and if there is, I'll be rushing towards it because I want to see my Savior's wounds. In glory one day, I want to touch his hand and see the scars, the only ones, and it has been said, and I believe it's the case, in heaven. I want to be there and touch his side, hopefully not because of unbelief, but just to remain connected, that the grace of glory provides to the tangible reality that those wounds connect me to the cost and purpose of God in washing away my sin. Is there any kind of reassurance that we can have like that right now? 
The answer is yes, and it's at the Lord's table. The answer is yes, and it's at the Lord's table. If you're a believer in this room, if your sins have been washed away, and you believe that with all your heart, there are those times where you, of course, wrestle and have discouragement and difficulty. Nevertheless, deep within your soul, you've confessed your sin. You've placed Christ at the top of your, uh, as your Savior, your Savior and Lord, your King of kings. Then the table, if you've repented of your sins and turned to him, is open to you. If you have not confessed your sins and believed in Jesus, do not come to this table. It's just a symbol of judgment for you if you were to do so. However, the doors of fellowship and communion are wide open to those who have touched the body and blood of Jesus Christ in their own soul by affirming the reality of his death for their sin. Let us pray and transition to communion this day. Lord, we thank you for the reality that is displayed before us of the work of Jesus Christ represented in these elements today. I pray for all who approach the table, especially those who have been recently baptized, that you would etch all the deeper upon their soul the reality of your salvation for them. Lord, we recognize that our highest goal is achieved when we grow in grace and knowledge, not for our glory, but for yours. So we pray that we would grow in grace and knowledge through the proclamation of your word, through the singing of these songs of worship, through the testimony of your work proclaimed through this table, that we might be further equipped with all things pertaining to life and godliness, even the communion bread and cup, so that we might grow in our call to be holy and godly, diligent stewards of your patience, spotless, blameless, at peace with you and with men and the circumstances in which you've placed us. And all this, that you might be made manifest and your kingdom would advance through your church, growing in sanctification and proclaiming the message of truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.